Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, May the 4th here in New York City. Hoping everyone is staying safe and healthy as we continue to fight the battle against the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Coming up today on the podcast is a really interesting interview. I I got the opportunity to do uh, Sunday night with Elliot Steinmetz, who's the head men's basketball coach at Yeshiva University. Uh, Yeshiva was the story of, in my opinion, not just Division Three basketball, but all of Division One basketball this year. As after dropping the first game of the season to Occidental College out in Los Angeles, they went on a 29-game winning streak and made it all the way to the Sweet 16 before, obviously, the, the cancellation of the NCAA tournament. Uh, just a really good team, really exciting. Uh, coach Steinmetz is Really, really interesting guy, and I just had a great time talking to him. I, I hope you guys all enjoy it. Uh, before we get to the podcast, as always, uh, recommendation corner. Uh, as it is May the 4th, uh, any Star Wars films or uh, TV shows fit with the day? It's a great theme day. If, you know, My personal favorite is Empire Strikes Back, but really you can't go wrong with, with any of them. Uh, and if you're not watching... The Last Dance, Michael Jordan's 10-part 30 for 30 series on ESPN. I highly, highly recommend everyone going and, and checking that out. It was directed by a Williams graduate, a NESCAC pride, uh, Jason Heyer. Uh, just a really interesting way that he's going back and forth between the, the past and the 1998 season. And, I'm picking, and I picked up a, a new book this week. It's called Range. It's uh, David Epstein's book that came out this past uh, fall. I read his first book, The Sports Gene. It's one of my favorite books that I've ever read. I think it's required or should be required reading for uh, anyone who wants to work in sports or coach. It's it's just an incredible, incredible book. So I'm reading range. I'm enjoying it so far. So uh, I'm going to keep updating as I keep reading and enough of here. So I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back, this is my interview from this past weekend with the head men's basketball coach at Yeshiva University, Elliot Steinmetz. Joining me today on the Double Double is a very special guest, the head men's basketball coach at Yeshiva University, Elliot Steinmetz. He played his college ball at Yeshiva, graduating in 2002, and he began his career as an attorney right after graduation. Coach Steinmetz received his JD from St. John's and worked for various law firms over the years and founded his own firm, Rosenberg and Steinmetz, in 2014. Even while pursuing a career in law, he remained involved with the game of basketball, founding JV Elite, an intense summer training program, summer training basketball program for the top Jewish high school players nationwide, and coaching at the high school level on, on Long Island. In his five seasons from 2005 to 2010, at the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, he led the team to a 104-44 and record over that span and led the North Shore Hebrew Academy to a 66-14 and record over three seasons from 2011-2014, including back-to-back appearances in the Metropolitan Yeshiva High School Athletic League Championship in 2013-14. and Coach Steinmetz got the chance to coach the international game in 2010 as he was the head coach of the 18U Team USA basketball team for that year's Maccabi Games in Australia, winning gold. He followed up in the 2013 Games in Israel, winning gold again with the 18U team. 
in the spring of 2014, Coach Steinmetz was named the new head coach of Yeshiva University and has led them to numerous program firsts, including their first Skyline Conference Championship and NCAA tournament bid in 2018. The, 20, the, the 2019-2020 season was even the best in program history as they won the conference again and finished the year with a 29-1 record. Two players, Gabe Leifer and Ryan Terrell, were named All-Americans, and Coach Steinmetz was named the D3Hoops.com National Coach of the Year. I'm thrilled that he is taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Doing okay, David. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, Coach. So kind of just take us back to the beginning. Tell us all where you grew up and how you fell in love with the game of basketball. Sure. So I I grew up in, in a town in Nassau County called Woodmere. Um, I grew up, my father actually was a high school basketball coach when I was, uh, when I was much younger, he stopped when my, uh, little sister was born, but it was, uh, something that, you know, gave me the opportunity to kind of be around the game from, from a young age. Um, my grandfather had actually played and, and coached a little bit as well. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I, I was not the, uh, not the strongest player growing up in middle school. I, I never made the team in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Uh, cried every year after <laughs> I got home from tryouts and got cut. Um, but ninth grade uh, started in a new school, and I, you know, I worked really hard, and I was able to make the varsity team there. I ended up playing junior varsity because it was, you know, the first time playing ball for me, so I, yeah. uh, so I needed to learn the game a little bit. But ended up uh, ended up with a pretty decent uh, high school career. Uh, didn't ha- didn't hurt that I grew about ten inches between uh, <laughs> sophomore and junior year. So I, I went from being like a little five three uh, point guard to you know to about six one six two by the time I was a junior or senior. That's awesome. Um, and then uh, had the opportunity to obviously play at Yeshiva as you mentioned, and uh, the, you know kind of was always in love with the game. And my brother and I started that basketball camp, uh, JV Elite, as you mentioned, which is no longer in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, way back as, as kind of an opportunity to stay involved in the game, uh, and ultimately that led to my first head coaching position at the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County. So, coach, in high school, you go you go through a, a major growth spurt. What was your recruiting process like, and how did you end up choosing to go to Yeshiva? So interestingly, you know, back then, you know, not a lot of people from the um, not a lot of student athletes from the from the Orthodox Jewish world were really going um, into other programs. You know, whether it be Division One, Division Two, or Division Three, it, it was kind of um, you know, if you were if you were a top guy in that. You know, with that kind of a background, you were either not playing ball in college or you were going to Yeshiva University because you would have the opportunity to play there and not have to worry about, you know, the religious observances and Sabbath mm. and kosher and, and all those things. In today's world, it's a little bit different because there's so much more, you know, tolerance and, and availability for, for guys to kind of be on other campuses and still have what they need in terms of religious practice. So it becomes a little bit more of a recruiting game. Uh, but for me, I, it was either I was going to go play uh, and I was going to be at Yeshiva or, or, you know, or was going to go somewhere else and probably not play. Gotcha. So for the listeners who may not know, Yeshiva University is the world's premier Jewish institution for higher education. And religious studies are a key part of the curriculum at Yeshiva. Can you describe what a typical day was like for you as a basketball player at Yeshiva in college? Yeah, so it, you know it's uh, it's a dual curriculum there, and and it's um, it's a long day. There's no doubt. So we, we would start off usually uh, you know prayer services around eight thirty in the morning, uh, sometimes earlier, sometimes around eight. Uh, we would have 
you know, uh, Talmudic or, or Hebrew classes that would usually go from, depending on the program you were in, either 9 o'clock till about 1 in the afternoon. And, and for, for some of the rabbinic students, it would go till about 3 in the afternoon. And that would be when you would first start your, you know, secular, regular academic course study. So gotcha. we could be in, uh, in regular academic classes, you know, anywhere from 1 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 8, 9 o'clock at night. Wow. Um, you know, just kind of making up those, you know, making up those hours and making sure that we were getting our, our full credits in. Uh, and then obviously on top of that, being a student athlete, uh, we, you know, we had practices at nights, usually somewhere around 7.30 to 9.30 uh, were usually when we practiced uh, back then. Uh, these days we practice a lot in the mornings, mm-hmm. um, usually around 6.30. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so coach, juniors and seniors uh, in college are faced with sometimes increased external pressures on what their plans are for post-graduation. I know this because I'm personally going through it right now, and it's kind of everyone's favorite question to ask you. When did you know or decide that you were going to pursue law and go to law school after graduation? So it's funny. I had zero interest throughout college in being a lawyer. (laughs) Um, And what happened was I was working – I was a finance major, Mm -hmm. and I was working working part-time at a trading desk in Times Square. Uh, And then the economy went to hell. And I literally would come in as an intern – uh, three days a week, you know, during the school year. And I, towards the end of my uh, college, you know, towards the end of college when I was a senior, I started coming in seeing less and less people on the desk every day. <laughs> and, you know, I started realizing people were getting let go. Uh-huh. And they kept telling me, no, don't worry, we're going to hire you after college, we're going to hire you. And I kept looking around every day and there's less and less people. I said, it's very nice that you're going to hire me. <laughs> I'm not going to last three months, you know, when you guys are just getting rid of people. So I, I turned around, I signed up for the LSAT and I, I started studying. Uh, and I figured, you know, worst case scenario, um, it would be it would be a good backup. And, right. uh you know, ultimately, I decided to, you know, to go to law school, obviously, and, you know, decide from there what I wanted to do career-wise. So while in law school at St. John's in Queens, you founded uh, JV Elite, as you mentioned, uh, a summer training program for the top Jewish basketball players around the country. Can you kind of just describe what JV Elite did and what were some of the things that, that it achieved? Sure. This, this was one of the, you know, one of the best things I think I did. It was really my brother's idea, my younger brother, Sean. Um, he, you know, he came to me with it, you know, while I think while I was finishing up college and we ultimately started, I think I was already in law school, like you said. Um, but we wanted to create kind of an opportunity for some of these higher level Jewish athletes to go to what would be considered like almost like a like a five-star atmosphere gotcha um you know but not have to worry about again the religious observances and Mm -hmm. and kosher food and all those things so we started an an invite only program um you know we expanded it over the course of the five or six years that we were running it but we would invite the top players from across the country and kids would fly in drive in or whatever it was and you know we, we rented out a facility in upstate new york um, and we brought in, you know, we brought in some college coaches and we brought in, uh, you know, as many high level instructors as we can. And we, we tried to put together as, as, you know, good a program as you could for the five days that those guys were going to be there. Gotcha. It sounds like a, like an awesome experience. So you graduate from St. John's in 2005 and you begin your, your legal career yet at the same time, you also began your coaching career at the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County. What led you to start coaching high school basketball and just how did you manage to balance those two jobs? So, 
coming out of uh, running JV Elite, I had gotten a call from the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County, and they were looking to, uh, you know, basically restart their their coaching staff. Um, I think JV Varsity, you know, men's and women, um, and they asked me to come in for an interview. And at the time, I, I was kind of trying to figure out how I was going to stay involved in the game. Um, you know, I was playing in corporate leagues and the lawyer league uh, mm-hmm. in New York City probably three days a week and, you know, going to the gym a couple of days a week to, you know, to find pickup games, um, you know, and, and it's just this kind of, to me, was an opportunity to see if it was an angle on the game that I might, you know, be able to kind of keep that passion and and um, and see if I could learn it from, you know, from that side of the game on the coaching side. Um, at first, it was really not something I thought was going to be for me, uh-huh. um, you know, and uh I enjoyed it the first couple of years, but um, there's no doubt it was a, a major learning curve for me, and, and it, it took a few years for me to really get into it. Gotcha. So high school students coach can just be a really difficult age group in general, just with the various maturity and development gaps just and levels between the kids and just everything else going on in just the life of a high school student. Uh, how did you try and connect with the high school players in, in your program? So you're right. Um, it's it's a different world, obviously, from college. Uh, you know, kids are a lot more certainly uh, sensitive and, and vulnerable. Like college, it's a lot easier to tell a guy, you know, kind of where he stands, and you know that he may not have an opportunity to play regular minutes, and you know, or, or that he might be a practice player. Um, in high school, you, first of all, you don't know because kids develop so quickly from year to year. You could have a guy who, as a, as a sophomore or as a junior, you know, may not you know, may not fit into your plans and all of a sudden completely changes his game and grows five inches and, and suddenly he's a superstar by the time right. he's a senior. So, you know, I, I think the, the idea in high school is really it has to be all about the teaching and all about the, all about the development. And, and I think the focus has to, you know, you, you know whereas, whereas a college coach, you might be able to kind of focus on a little more on your recruits um, and then development and have help with the assistant coaches developing other guys, um, you can, you know, in, in high school, you really have to kind of share that, right. uh, that same, you know, the same amount of reps and the same focus that you have with your starting five, so to speak, um, as you would with your bottom five. Because you, gotcha. you, you don't want to be the cause of kind of hindering somebody's development at that age. Um, so, you know, I think it's important, uh, you know, to kind of keep that balance and, and, and fairness, so to speak, uh, amongst the entire roster, uh, so that everybody feels like they're getting, you know, they're getting their, you know, so to speak, fair shot. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. So in the summer of 2010, you got the opportunity to coach the 18U USA basketball team at the Maccabi games in Australia for just, for a listener who may not have ever heard of the Maccabi Games, can you just briefly describe what they are? Sure. The Maccabi Games are, are, are the easiest way to describe it would be sort of like a, a Jewish Olympics. It's, it's for anybody who has any sort of a Jewish, a Jewish affiliation um, is eligible to play, and they run games in you know different regions of the world uh, over the course of you know I think a four year cycle. Um, you know, they, they had Australia, they have the Pan Am games in, in South America. Um, I, I believe they have the European games still. Mm-hmm. And, and then the big one every four years is the one that's actually in Israel every four years, which is called the Maccabia, which is, you know, draws some very high level Jewish athletes. So you'll see guys like, uh, like, uh, what's his name? Um, Kraselberg, who was, uh, who was a gold medalist and, you know, swimmer, um, and, and, you know, uh, you know, guys like that. Gotcha. Who will come and compete? You'll have a lot of a lot of D one guys who will come and play on the eighteen U or the open team. Uh, some pros, 
Rose. Um, you know, guys like Doug Gottlieb played back in the day. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, it, it happens to be a very, very cool experience and, and a ton of fun. Whichever whichever one of the games you end up in, it's, it's just a, it's a major, major experience and just a ton of fun to be around, you know, athletes, obviously, from all over the world. Um, and it's, you know, it's country-based, kind of like the Olympics. So yeah. you'll find yourself, uh, you know, we were Team USA, we find ourselves playing against Brazil or South Africa right. or, um, you know, or Germany or, or whatever it is, or Israel, obviously. Yeah, I, I've had two teammates, one one in high school who played in uh, European games that was held uh, in Germany. He was on the team. And then one of my college teammates uh, played uh, on on the team as well. And, and they both just had incredible, awesome experiences uh, playing in, in the Maccabi game. So uh, it's, it's just an awesome experience for anyone who can do it. But, Coach, so most people are most familiar with the modern USA basketball style uh, for the Olympics in terms of they just basically invite all the best NBA players to Las Vegas and then choose of uh, the team of the 12 best guys who just want to play that that summer. What is the process like in selecting the team uh, for the Maccabi games? And how did you go about uh, choosing the roster or selecting the roster for, for your team? So it is somewhat similar. Uh, obviously, it's not NBA guys. Yeah. Uh, but we um, we brought every, we did an East Coast and a West Coast. So we we had a tryout out in Los Angeles um, where we had basically anyone who was West Coast could drive or fly in. We had a two day tryout there, uh, and then we had a two day tryout in Philly on the East Coast where okay. people could come and try out as well. Um, we certainly went in and recruited as well and sent out invites to you know various individuals that we wanted to make sure we saw at the tryout. Uh, and then, of course, it was open to, you know, anybody who wanted to come and try out as well. Uh, it was fun. It was, it was really it was a fun four days, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically being able to see that kind of talent show up in the gym. For sure. Um, and, uh, you know, be able to kind of select from there. So there's obviously growing pains that each team has to go through. And it's just super rare. For, I know I've, I've played a lot. You've played a lot. For just for that, that first time, a group of five is on the court for the first time. It's not always uh, the most pretty experience. What are some things that you try to do in practice to help the team gel on the court and uh, and come together? Um, you know, it's it's about keeping it simple. You know, so like with the Maccabi games, we were we had the opportunity to have a weekend beforehand where we were able to bring everybody. To, we did it in Philly. We were able to bring mm-hmm. everybody to Philly for a weekend and run a bunch of practices and kind of have the guys together. You know, eat meals together, um, get a little bit of bonding experience. But it's really about, you know, at that level, it's, it's you know, some really talented players. It's, it's just about keeping it simple and giving them, you know, a few things that they can do in terms of spacing and then, you know, a couple of maybe quick hits they can learn gotcha. on the fly so that, you know, on the court they have the opportunity to mesh in just a few practices. Um, you know, if you start to kind of put in complex stuff, number one, you don't have the time to teach it. And number yeah. two, it doesn't give them ever an opportunity to really work on, you know, like you said, the chemistry aspect. True. Uh, so I think, I think the best thing we did was kind of say, Hey, you know, we're going to keep this simple. We're going to give you some spacing. We're going to give you some, you know, some, uh, you know, quick hit stuff to work off of. Uh, but you know, you guys are the ones who have to put the ball in the basket. So make yourselves comfortable and, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, you know, build your own chemistry and get refs. Gotcha. That, that sounds great. So winning a gold medal is obviously something that only very few people can say that they have accomplished. What do you remember the most about that whole experience coaching uh, for the first time in the Maccabi Games? 
So, we, we, you know, it's it's interesting. The the best memory I have from from those games, and, and especially the one in Israel, it, it's not even on the court. You know, the basketball yeah. was fun, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun to be around. You know, that kind of talent, and uh, you know, for me as as a high school coach, and, and suddenly I'm coaching a bunch of guys who are going to play. You know, various levels of college basketball. It was you know the best talent I at that point had ever coached. Um, and it was just, it was fun to kind of be able to, you know, give them stuff to do and watch them execute to such perfection. But really the most meaningful and the coolest part was, was the off the court stuff. It was yeah. when we'd be, you know, sitting around, you know, whether, whether it was at something like the Western wall or, or, you know, one of the various religious sites in Israel that a lot of these guys had never been to and kind of seeing them react to that for the first time. Um, you know, or it could have been a, you know, one, one of my best memories from it was just sitting in the hallway of the, of the hotel we were staying and the whole team was just sitting like you know against you know against the walls in the hallway just shoving down pizza after, after <laughs> a win. um and you know and just and just shooting the breeze and talking and and you know just you know fun things like that where yeah. you know, interesting conversations come up because everybody's got different backgrounds yeah all, all, all the best memories i have from from playing high school sports or even younger in college sports is it's you know you remember parts of the games, but it's always the just the stuff with your teammates and those experiences off the court are the sometimes the, the most memorable. Absolutely. So, so, so coach, I, I guess this question can can kind of go both ways. Obviously, you had a lot of success uh, coaching high school and in these international tournaments. How do you think that coaching at the high school level helped prepare you for the international game, and then also kind of just vice versa? How do you think that the experience coaching in the Maccabi games helped you coach high school? So I don't think I was prepared to coach at the Maccabi level, honestly. Um, I was, you know, I was a high school coach. I had been successful at the high school level. Um, you know, a lot of it, I think, was my understanding of the guys that I had at the high school level and the ability to work with them, um, you know, for such a long period of time. Um, and then to go and have to coach at the, you know, Maccabi level where these guys are just, you know, I mean, we, we, we had, the, you know, guy who ended up being rookie of the year and player of the year uh, in the Ivy League. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we had, we had obviously, we had a couple of NESCAP guys. We had a couple of, uh, of UAA guys. So we, had, we had some pretty high-level players, uh, a couple of D2 guys. Um, we had, I think, three or four Ivy guys. So we, we had some really high-level players. Uh, I, I think... Honestly, we, you know, I was able to get through that, number one, because of the coaches I was working with, who I thought were, were very, very good, uh, and I learned a lot from, and number two, the level of player. You know, I, I think the, the best thing I did, like I said before, was kind of keep it simple mm-hmm. and not try to overcoach, you know, that kind of talent. Um, you know, but jumping from the high school game to coaching kids of that caliber was a little much for me at that point. And, you know, I, I always say it, and I think it's the same thing I had when I, when I first took over at Yeshiva, um, you know, you suddenly jump from from high school kids to, to college men, yeah. um, and it, it's a very very different game. It's uh, you know the coaching around you in terms of the the, the, the opponents and, and the people you're, you're seeing every every week adjust a lot faster. They're a lot smarter and they know the game a lot better. Um, you know, sometimes you have to, as you're learning, have the players who can carry you through as a coach. And, and I think I was lucky to have that both at the Maccabi level and my first couple of years at Yeshiva as well. That's that's awesome. And so you racked up a incredible 170 and 58 overall coaching record in high school hoops. Did you always have an eye towards maybe wanting to get into to college coaching? And just what intrigued you just about the yeshiva position? So I, you know, it was always a thought. It wasn't something I really was planning on. Um, 
when I was cooking at the North Shore Hebrew Academy, um, the uh, you know I was I was it was obviously it was part time. My full time job was was with the founder of the school at a at a mortgage company that he owns, where mm-hmm. I was working as an attorney. So I had a pretty good setup for a, for a high school coach. Where, yeah, where kind of it was you know I had the not not just that it was tied to my full time job, but I really had the kind of flexibility within my full time job to then go and and be able to do the coaching at the level I wanted to you know for for a high school team um so you know even when the yeshiva job opened up i initially was not going to apply apply for it because i was kind of happy where i was uh you know i was having success and i was obviously um you know in a good career for me and it was just it was a good spot uh but a number of people reached out and, and kind of convinced me to take a shot at it and, and you know ultimately it worked out and it gave me at the same time the ability to kind of remain a part-time coach full-time lawyer which is something that was important to me um, so I was able to, you know, once, uh, once I got through the interview process and, and got the job, I was able to kind of make it happen. Yeah. So, so, so that brings me to, to my next question, coach in the spring of 2014, you get hired at Yeshiva and that same year you launched your own law firm. Just how are you able to manage what most people would consider two full-time jobs? Uh, very little sleep. Short answer. <laughs> Um, you know, it, when, when we started out this firm um, back in 2014, it, it was a jump, no doubt. You know, I was I was not coming out of another firm where I was bringing clients with me. Uh, my partner, my partner came with me, and, and she's a litigator, and we were both kind of starting from scratch in terms of the client base. Um, and it, it was a risk. There's no doubt it was a risk, but it was uh, something that we were you know we were confident about. Um, you know, it was something we were going to, we were willing to build kind of one day at a time and go after clients. Um, you know, but it's, it's a lot, you know, we, you know, I was able to get my practice schedule at YU to, uh, to be six o'clock or six 30 in the mornings. So mm. then I was able to be at work by eight 45 or nine o'clock and, and kind of get a full day in obviously in terms of the law practice, um, you know, late night film sessions, we do a lot of our film. You know, I imagine you have a lot of classroom film time, film time with a full-time coach. Mm-hmm. We do that as much as we can, but we have a lot of, we have a lot of film sessions that are done, um, you know, virtually where we yeah. send out clips on a, on a chat and the guys, you know, especially with our guys who have dual curriculum, you can't always get everybody at the same time. Even right, if you right. Have, you know, we sometimes want to do an eight o'clock at night film session and three guys have a lab or a class. Yeah. So, you know, very often what we'll do is we'll, you know, cut up the film and, and send it out to the guys and then do it virtually so they could all kind of do it on their own time and, and read the notes over and, and, and watch the film. Um, you know, but it's it's about adapting and it's about adjusting, you know, schedule wise and time management and, and all the important things they, uh, they teach you about in college. Yeah, for sure. So one thing I read while researching for this podcast, Coach, was that when you took over for uh, when you took over the program, your goal was to recruit the best Jewish players nationwide to come to Yeshiva. How did you first uh, just go about that that process? Um, it's it's about reaching too high. And mm-hmm. then, and then, kind of figuring it out from there. That's how that's how it works to me. Um, you know, I, I was able to identify um, a number of, of Jewish players around the country who I thought were higher level than 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 we are. Um, you know, whether it be guys who you know were were getting D one scholarships or or guys at the time who might have been going you know at the time what was higher level D three, and you know, obviously we built our way towards that now. Um, but you know, to me, it was about overreaching, and then. You know, finding finding your way back from there. So, you know, to me, if there was a guy who's out there getting D one scholarship offers, and he's and he's a guy who I think you know should be you know we we have a 
one percent or less chance of getting, he needs to hear from me. Right. Uh, even if it's a no, he needs to hear from me. Gotcha. And then you kind of work down from there. Um, but I think that's kind of the way you build the exposure and you show guys how serious you are about building a program. Mm-hmm. And then, and then of course, from there, it's it's all about winning. If you're if you're able to kind of get the winning going, that that becomes a little bit contagious, and then you're able to bring guys in. So, coach, most basketball people know that good basketball and good basketball players come from a lot of different places and the game is is truly global yet non-basketball people still judge a book by their cover and just a lot of times you know the guy who nobody wants to pick on the playground because of what they look like is the best player there do you guys ever use opposing teams as misconceptions about you to your own advantage all the time and I, and I think it's I think it's you know for better or worse I think it's starting to go away a little bit the last few years but there's no there's no doubt I mean I remember when we started we'd go into games and it was clear that some of these teams weren't even putting together scouting reports for Yeshiva wow. um, you know it was kind of like they, they might they might throw something on the board about who the top two guys are but they weren't having you know they weren't developing scouting reports and it was just clear they thought they were going to come in and handle us because of because of what we looked like um, I don't buy into it as much as, as some of our guys do and, and like I said I think it's starting to you know I think that conversation is, is, is changing over the last few years based on what we've been able to do um, but our guys talk about it all the time our guys talk about all the time how they feel like uh, sometimes they'll show up and some of the guys wear yarmulkes when they play and, and they feel like you know they get dismissed as not a mm-hmm. ball player and nothing to them is more satisfying um, you know than, than being able to kind of go out there compete and then obviously you know pull out a win and then, and then be able to walk out of the gym victorious for sure. So, Coach, I don't want to spend too much time on this, as I would much rather talk about all the, the positive things about your program and team. But unfortunately, we, we do still live in a world with a lot of anti-Semitism. College students and crowds in particular can be especially harsh and demeaning. In the 1980s, for instance, John Thompson used to take his team off the court when opposing fans would chant incredibly racist things at Patrick Ewing. Have you and the guys in your program faced anti-Semitism on the road? And kind of just what do you do when you're when you're faced with it? So it, it did not happen at all this year. Um, and, you know, and maybe part of that is the fact that we had so much media following us around throughout the year that there wasn't mm-hmm. an opportunity for it. It's happened in the past. I, I'll, I'll definitely say it's not often. Um, not as often as it was when I played, for sure, uh, which is a great thing. And it's and to be very clear, it's never never in my six years at YU has it ever happened from a an opposing player or a coach. Okay. We've never had an issue on the court, which is which is a beautiful thing because that was yeah. not the case when I played. Um, you know, unfortunately, we've had incidents coming out of the stands where somebody will shout something or yell something. Uh, most of the time, we don't generally hear it while the game is going on. We'll either hear it on film afterwards, or a parent will say something about it who was in the stands afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something that I think the first few years um, we would, you know, we would talk about just ignoring anything and, and kind of being, uh, you know, the bigger man, so to speak, and then just continuing to compete. Um, but over the last couple of years where there's been really a rise in, in anti-Semitic activity, you know, not not necessarily at our games, but in, in the outside world. Yeah. There, was, there, was, there was the rash of it, you know, over, uh, I think it was like November, December time where there were a number of violent attacks in yeah. various communities in Brooklyn and in um, like Spring Valley and, and, and other areas. And, uh, you know, we talked about it the last couple of years that it's not something that we're going to just let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if, you know, we talk to our players and, and we tell our parents as well, if something comes out of the stands and, and they're hearing something that's just completely inappropriate and doesn't belong in the game, I want to know because we want to stop the game. Yeah. Um, you know, and if, and if it doesn't get handled properly, then, then we will walk off and embarrass the school and that, yeah. you know, and it, or, or embarrass their fan base, I should say. 
Yeah. Uh, thankfully, it has not come to that. And, you know, like I said, it's never been something that's come from an opposing coach or player. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that, that's just a great approach. So now on to the fun part. Uh, you guys, the last three seasons have been one of the best programs in all of Division Three basketball. And part of that is not only the, the talent you've been able to, to bring in, but just the way that you guys play. Not only do you guys play really good uh, defense, you guys run beautiful motion offense full of passing, screening, cut, cutting. It's really the, the epitome of ball and body movement. You guys led Division Three basketball this past year in team field goal percentage at 53%, two whole percentage points higher than the next team, and you were second in team three-point shooting percentage at 40%. As a coach, just how do you get guys to, to play together like that on offense? So you got to get your top guys to do it. It's like anything else, right? It goes from the leaders down. If you if you get your top guys to buy in to the selflessness that is needed to run the offense that we run uh, and to recognize the difference between unselfish and selflessness, and I know it sounds like there's syn- you know, synonyms and it sounds like the same thing, there's a difference between being unselfish and being selfless, right? Yeah. An, unselfish, an unselfish player is working his butt off to get open so that he can get a good shot for his team. Right? There's, and there's nothing and there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's how you know most of the country works. You're working your butt off to go and get a good shot so that you're taking a high percentage shot to help your team win. That's unselfish basketball and, and there's nothing wrong with it. We try to go another level. We try to impart on our guys the concept of playing selfless. And, and to me, that means that you're working your butt off not to get yourself a high percentage shot. You're working your butt off to get your teammate a high percentage shot. Yeah. And, and if you have five guys on the floor at a time that are willing to work that way, what ends up happening is, is exactly what happened for us this year. Your best guys still get the most shots, mm-hmm. and, and they just get it in a, in a higher percentage spot and in a place that they're comfortable. So what starts to happen is guys start to read mismatches. They start to realize where guys like to get the ball, and then they go and they screen and they cut accordingly. Um, so, you know, to, to me, once we were able to get our top guys to buy into that concept, um, you know, the rest of it kind of flows down from there. Yeah, so, so that kind of brings me to, to my next question, Coach, which is that I want to talk about two players in particular who really bought into that selfless uh, idea and concept. And the first is uh, Gabriel Leifer, uh, senior forward this, this year. In his three years playing college basketball, he was named the Skyline Conference Player of the Year in 2019. He made back-to-back All-American teams and just numerous other alc- accolades that would just, you know, we could go on for minutes here. His career average is 17 points, 12.5 rebounds, and 5.5 assists per game. I've seen him play numerous times on on video and and in person, and my dad even believes that that he's the best rebounder in all of Division III basketball. Just what is it like to coach a player like him whose skill set is so well-rounded and is just so consistent on a night-in, night-out basis? Yeah, your your dad is one hundred percent right. Um, he, that 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 kid has an absolute knack for the ball. He probably has the best hands I've ever seen as a coach. Um, you know, his understanding of the game is is just very very high level. Uh, he's he's a great kid. Starts with that. He's a great kid. I've known him a long time. I watch you know I watched him play obviously in high school. Um, you know, and uh, and I remember when I was recruiting him out of high school. You know, asking him. You know what he thinks that I think the best part of his game is, um, and I remember you know he's like oh the block shots or 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 you know the scoring or the dunking or all that stuff and and and, and he was shocked when I told him you know my, my answer was 
how he casts the ball. Yeah. Just, he sees the floor so well. And and, and the, when I first noticed it was in high school when he was throwing outlet passes. He'd go up and get a rebound, and in one motion the ball would be down court, you know, ahead of the field to one of his guards for a layup. And, and I just remember looking at it, and I'm like, a six five kid who's got that kind of strength and, and that kind of court vision is, is going to be extremely dangerous at the D3 level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, his, you know, his willingness to kind of go always team first uh, just makes him a superstar because that's a kid who, if he wanted any night to get 25, any night, and all he cares about is winning. Yeah. So for him, if it's, you know, a situation where a team wants to zone and try to, keep, you know, pack the middle and keep him from getting the ball down there, you know, and he doesn't want to force shots and settle too much from outside – He's very, very happy, like he did in the in the Skyline Championship game, or in the in the round of 32 game uh, in the NCAA tournament, just going high post and and picking apart a defense and getting a triple double, you know, and going yeah. 10, 10, and 10, 10, and 20 or whatever it is. Yeah, if 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 anyone is looking for just a clip of of, of how to play basketball and pass the ball, just pull up the the Skyline Championship game this year. I think he had like 15 points, 20 plus rebounds, and 16 assists, basically. As you're starting four or five, man, just incredible, incredible stuff. And Ryan Terrell is the second player. He's a six-seven wing guard from the Los Angeles area, and he was named a first-team All-American on D3Hoops.com this year. And he won the Conference Player of the Year award as as a sophomore. He's a guy who has reportedly turned down Division One scholarship offers to to play at Yeshiva. Uh, in my opinion, coach, he, he might just be the, the best player in the entire country and just had it co- coming off an incredible season, averaging 24 points, six rebounds and three and a half assists per game while shooting an incredible 64 percent from the field and 46 percent from three on a lot of attempts. For someone who just hasn't seen his game, can you describe what it's what what he's like as a player and, and just what it's like to, to coach a guy like him? Uh, it's easy to coach a guy like him because he's, you know, we, we like to call him our Swiss Army knife. Yeah. Uh, we, we can put him anywhere we want on the court. Uh, we can play any mismatch we want, and he can defend anybody we want on the court. Uh, so he gives us just options. I mean, look, there, there's no doubt he's 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 a D1 player. Um, you know, he, like you said, he had offers coming out of high school, uh, ultimately decided to come play for us. And, um, you know, it's, you know, there, there's no uh, there's no magic to it. When you have a kid who's that good, you try to put him in a, in a spot to be successful. Uh, when you have a kid who's that good and he's that selfless and, 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 and he's that easy to coach, uh, that's what makes him, you know, probably an all-time great at the D3 level. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, his his season highlights that, that he posted, I think, on, on his Twitter page, uh, those were just an incredible 10 minutes of dunks and passes and threes and just he's just a special, special player. So this past season, Coach, you guys went 29-1. and one. Coming into the season, did did you know that that this group could could be that special? Not necessarily twenty nine and one special, but yes, this this was this was the group that we thought was uh, you know national championship contender ready. And we mm-hmm. know there's a lot of really good teams out there, and and there were sixteen of them left, and and I think any one of them probably could have you know gone all the way. Um, but you know, coming into this season uh, and and throughout the last few years of putting together you know the recruiting classes that we did, we kind of felt that this was you know really going to be the culmination of of you know what we were. Trying trying to put together at Yeshiva for, for a big run. Um, you know, we came out obviously and lost that first game. Uh, and then we saw right away the next day, like literally, 
you know, a few hours later. I mean, we played 8.30 on a Saturday night, turned around and played at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon out in California again, yeah. um, the, you know, the next day. And then uh, we saw right away how quickly these guys were able to adjust their mentality and adjust the way we wanted to play uh, and then just get better every day from there. So, yes, we, we did expect to have, you know, certainly a special season. Uh, I don't think you can ever predict 29 in a row. That was just yeah. know, some of it's luck and some of it's just our guys – uh, you know, consistency, you know, in the way they compete in practice and kind of bringing it every day. Yeah. So a, a lot of coaches l- like to say that a winning streak of, of that many games, 29 games can, can add a lot of pressure. And, and some coaches even say that, that, that they would rather lose a game midway th- through there to, to, to not deal with the external pressure of trying to keep the streak going. I've never been on a winning streak in, in anything in my life of, of that many games, games in a row. What is it like to to coach a team that that is winning so much and and has a streak going and you know up to in in the mid into the high twenties? Uh, you and me both. I never had that before either. So it was it was a new experience for me. Also, I had I had a high school team that I coached my last year coaching high school that went uh, undefeated in our league. Um, you know, and and I remember coaches calling me throughout the year saying, "Hey, you got to drop one somewhere. Or yeah. they're going to have pressure." I don't believe in that. You know, it's like you got to approach every game like you're going to win. Uh, you know, we didn't think about it. I, I don't think our guys knew throughout even how many games we had won in a row. I don't remember <laughs> really paying attention to it. Um, you know, we had a goal coming into the season to go undefeated in the conference. We knew it wouldn't be easy. There's there's a lot of good teams in our conference. Um, I think our conference very often kind of gets. Uh, the, you know, the raw end of the deal a little bit in terms of where people think they stand. But uh, you know, our conference had some pretty damn good wins this year against yeah. non-conference teams. Uh, and, you know, we, we certainly struggled in some games, you know, Sarah Lawrence being one of them, uh, Farmingdale being another. But, we you know, we certainly struggled throughout the year in some games in conference. But that was that was a goal that we had. And, you know, kind of as the year built, it was we, we just had really mature leaders and, and you know, especially our, our senior captains um, who had our guys focused in each game, every single game, one at a time. And even if we came out and we had a sloppy start, these guys were mature enough at halftime to kind of adjust their mentality and come out right. and play a different kind of second half. So you guys go on to capture the Skyline Conference Championship and you find out you're headed down to Johns Hopkins for their pod for the first round of the NCAA tournament to face WPI. Obviously, Coach, the world kind of had other plans going on. Uh, a father of a student at the university was the first case of coronavirus in, in the New York City area. And I believe that the student had, had also tested positive as well as a professor at the university uh, for the coronavirus d- during that week. And, and this is all happening as you guys are preparing to go down to play a really good WPI team in the first round of the NCAA tournament. How could this have possibly been a normal week of game prep for you guys and and kind of how did you try to make it as normal as possible it it was it was not normal at all it was um it was extremely difficult it was very very distracting uh there is there's nothing i can say to make it even seem like it was close to a normal you know week or so of, of preparation up to and including being down there where you know we weren't sure if we were going to play they kept changing the game time on us um, you know, and, and nobody's fault. You know, everybody was trying to be precautious uh, on something that really 
it turned out we did had no idea how serious of a thing it would be. Um, you know, and, and at the time, you know, we, we were we were very very careful about it. You know, the student that Yeshiva who had tested positive obviously had nothing to do with the basketball team. Yep. Also had also what people didn't realize he had not been on campus. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, you know again, and and at the time this was the very beginning stages. Of course, now you look back and you kind of you know you kind of wish everybody had shut down everything even a week or two before that because for sure you know how quickly it's it's spread through this country. Um, you know, but you know at the time we had uh, the you know the um, the health organization you know the New York Health Department on board. Um, and they were, you know, they were very comfortable with our guys being cleared. Um, you know, as far as I know, thank God, none of our guys have been sick, yeah. um, nor have their families. So it's, it's, uh, it was just a very kind of touch and go week where even when we were practicing and, and we were, were not sure what was going on, it was just a kind of like a different feel and a different sense. And, you know, uh, it was a lot of it just kind of rested on our guys' shoulders for how they were going to be able to, you know, prepare for it mentally and, and be ready to play. And, you know, I give them a lot of credit. They're the resilient, they're a resilient group and a mature group. Um, and then obviously we dealt with the, I think we were the first sporting event in the country to be played with no fans. Yep. So there was, you know, kind of that added on top of it. Yeah, I, I, I think what, what you described is, is the classic case of people share the headline and they read the headline, but they don't read the actual story and see that everything that the school was doing, it was, was right up with the working with the health officials and, you know, the cleaning and making sure everything was okay and that the student had been on campus. Just as just my my weekly reminder to to don't just share the headline, but to actually click on the article and, and to read it. So rant aside, the drama continued when you guys were on the bus to Baltimore. For those who may not know, the hotel you're planning to stay at canceled your reservation at, at the last second. And as you said, Hopkins announced that they were going to play the play the games at, that weekend without any fans. What kind of when did you learn about all these changes that that were going on, and just how did they impact the team? So the hotel called us probably about I think we were an hour and a half out. We were we were you know really well into the trip, um, and then kind of laid it on us when we were you know just about getting there. Um, you know I, I got the concerns obviously. You know the issue I had with the hotel, and then I made that clear to them. Um, and obviously it got picked up in the media yeah. afterwards. Um, the the issue I had with the hotel was that they they were not taking the same precautions with anybody else. So yeah. you know they they they, they were. Uh, they were very, very quick to, you know, to turn and cancel our reservation. But when I asked them if they're taking other reservations from people from New York, or even if somebody was coming in from China, are they taking reservations? And and their answer was, well, yeah, you know, uh, you know, they were clearly singling out this group. Mm. Um, you know, so so to me that was a problem. Um, you know, I understand why they were doing it, and you know, a lot of people wanted to shout religious discrimination. That was not the case. You know, I don't believe that was the case. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it was some. I, I think it was some sort of discrimination. I, I don't. I don't think it was religious based. I think. I think they were scared, and I think they, you know, were, were certainly afraid of what was going on and didn't know how to handle it based on the news that had come out, obviously from Yeshiva. Uh, you know, but you know, the fact that they weren't taking those precautions anywhere else was was a little bit of an issue for me that we, you know, we kind of took personally. Um, you know, ultimately it worked out. We ended up in a very nice hotel. Uh, you know, in in downtown Baltimore, um, and in terms of Hopkins, you know, it was it was very back and forth as to whether the games were going to happen, were they not going to happen, were they yeah. going to be fans, were they not going to be fans. So it was really, you know, and it was just a lot of back and forth and a lot of unknown 
Um, and, you know, not a lot of opportunity for certainly me as a coach to kind of focus on just what was going on. You know, we tried to shield our players from it and just kind of, you know, give them updates as we needed to in terms of uh, logistics. Right. Uh, you know, but ultimately we got word probably around 11.30 on Friday morning when we were supposed to be leaving for what was going to be a 1 o'clock game. Uh, we, I think we finally got word around 11.30 that we were going to play it too with no fans. Gotcha. So you guys responded to that challenge of everything going on that previous week, and you just blast WPI on Friday, winning 102 to 78. Uh, Ryan Terrell scored 41 points in that game, and then you guys followed up with the win the next day against Penn State Harrisburg, 102 to 83. You guys were going to the Sweet 16, one of the 16 remaining teams uh, individually basketball. Can can you talk about what it was like to not only win those games, but to win convincingly in light of everything that the team had gone through the previous week? It was fun, uh, that's for sure. I mean, we probably played our best two games of the year, but I wasn't that surprised by the way we played. Um, I mean, I was surprised by the way we executed, but I was not surprised by the effect that our offense had on these teams. Um, Motion's a different thing, and and if you think about throughout the country, you know, 99% of the country in college basketball is running ball screen offense. We haven't set set a ball screen in four years. So... (laughs) You're suddenly, as a, as, a, as a coach, you know, you're, you're suddenly telling your guys, hey, you know what you prepared for all year for the last three, four years? You know, all the stuff we practiced defensively, um, you know, in work on in our sessions and on film in terms of guarding ball screen. Forget all that. Instead of watching the guy with the ball, now you got to now you got to watch the other four guys. Right. You know, don't even worry about the guy with the ball as much. Um, and and of course, then, you know. Terrell has the ball in his hand some of the time, so you yeah. kind of got to worry about the ball. But it, it just becomes a very different thing for teams to have to prepare for. Uh, and we we actually, one of the reasons we put it in four years ago was because we thought it would be a major advantage for us, yeah. you know, certainly come postseason and, and, and NCAA tournament, where you're going to see, you know, teams in our conference obviously start to catch up a little bit, uh, but it's still different when, than what they work on all year round. Um, but certainly when you go to the NCAA tournament and they got to watch it on film and try to figure it out, it's a very different look. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I remember going up against Swarthmore and then second round of, of an NCAA tournament. They run a motion offense, and uh, it's, it's really, really tough to stop with one or two days of, of, of prep. Uh, sure, and what, and what gets lost in it, I think, also, um, you know, and I was saying this recently in, in, in a media interview, well, you know, in another media interview, but what gets lost in it is that uh, we were so good defensively in those yeah. two games. Um, and, you know, to a point where... I didn't think we had to be as good offensively as we were to win those games. We right. just happened to have played the best two offensive games we played all year. But, you know, I, I definitely don't want it lost, you know, the, the effort my guys put in just defensively in terms of the game plan to execute. I thought they did such a fantastic job. 100%. So you guys come back home to, to New York. Obviously, the situation regarding the coronavirus was escalating every single day. Was were there some discussions starting to take place in the yeshiva community about precautions or additional steps you you might be taking as you guys were getting ready to go down to Randolph Macon to play them in the uh, Sweet Sixteen? So we we decided to be like super overly cautious with our with our guys since the school had already canceled classes at the time just out of an abundance of caution to see what was going on. Uh, we decided to keep our guys away from campus mm-hmm. and actually just kind of keep them together and, and away from the public. We, gotcha. we just didn't want to have a situation uh, where we went down the following week and 
you know, somebody was going to, you know, let's say another, let's say another case at the time would come out at why, you know, at Yeshiva or, or, or in one of those surrounding communities. And, you know, somebody would say, Oh, what about the team? This guy was with those people. And then he was with the team. And right, so right, we right. kind of kept our guys separate um, and together. And there was, there was actually a holiday that week, uh, a Jewish holiday. So we kind of kept them together for that holiday. Um, and we just tried to do what we could to kind of keep them, you know, isolated from, from the rest of the world for the week so that we would be uh, able to kind of go down with a clear mind um, from a health perspective that we hadn't exposed them in any way. Gotcha. So I'm sure in a day that you and your players will always remember, within 24 hours after the, after the NBA suspended season, after Rudy Gobert's positive coronavirus test, the NCAA announced they had canceled all the remaining winter and spring championships, and just all of a sudden your season was over. Where were you and the team when you guys found out the news that the tournament was canceled? And can you kind of just uh, share that reaction? So I had just pulled into the parking lot at the hotel, actually, in Virginia. And our guys were probably about a half an hour away on the bus. Um, it, it was it was weird because it's, it's, you know, you're used to a season ending with either, you know, a championship where obviously there's you know, glory and elation and excitement and celebration, or you're used to, you know, a loss, whether it's a playoff loss or your end of the season, you know, you don't make the playoffs. You're used to some sort of a failure at the end where there's kind of that sting of defeat or, or just disappointment. Um, but either way, you end the season with some sort of a result and some sort of kind of emotional feeling where you invested and either either you, you paid off and you won or you failed and you kind of feel the sting of having invested so much in it and then not reaching your goal. Right. And both of those are, you know, as much as the second one obviously hurts, they're both positive feelings. They're actual feelings. And, and, and to me, you know, and I tell our guys this all the time, there's nothing greater than that emotion of not being indifferent. Yeah. In, indifference is the worst thing in the world, right? right? But if you if you have that emotion, whether it's a good one or a bad one, because you put some you know put something into it because it mattered to you and you invested in it, then that's a positive emotion either way. Right. And we didn't get to experience that. Instead, it was kind of you know, and I keep I always, I always compare it to the end of Sopranos, where, where uh, <laughs> you know all of a sudden like you're you're hyped up and you're waiting to see what happens, and it's just like a blank screen, and they're like you know figure yeah. it out for yourself. Yeah. And and that's kind of what it was. There was just there was no emotion, and there was just um, this you know obviously this appointment but it was it, it just became you know such a, a surreal thing so quick that we didn't even we didn't even know how to handle it with our guys uh, and it kind of took a while to be able to kind of talk to them and say you know hey you know the world is you know life is just bigger than basketball and yeah. the world you know is, is kind of teaching us that lesson um and, and i think you know there's not much you can do except for kind of have perspective at that point and, and realize you know obviously what became a, a global event and how important it is I guess you could take the Sopranos analogy even further as, as you know, you were pulling into the parking lot. She was pulling into the parking lot at, at the right. diner in the finale. Uh, <laughs> so, so as we get towards the end here, Coach, I just want to ask you uh, about two more just bigger macro things about the program. One sure. thing that, that really stood out to me watching some of your games online this past year and just in researching this podcast, you guys have one of the, the best home crowds and home court advantages in all all of college basketball. I'm talking D1 all the way down to, to D3. For right. someone who just hasn't seen film or just pictures of what your gym looks like during home games, can you describe for them what the atmosphere is like? 
it's wild. It's um, if if you if you've been to a, a Jewish wedding or a bar mitzvah or any <laughs> of celebrations, I mean, it's 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 just wild. I, the best thing I can liken it to uh, would be if you watch like soccer in in, in like the European countries, where okay. you know where the fans are just going nuts the whole game and singing songs and and stuff like that. That kind of stuff happens at our games. Now we don't have the biggest gym in the world, which mm. plays into it also. Although you know. With the with the waiting lists we've had for tickets lately, we, we probably need <laughs> uh, if there's any sponsors out there. But um, you know, it, it's it's just a wild, wild atmosphere. There's there's usually not a seat in the house. Um, you know, as you get later in the season, you know, by the end of the regular season, we had two, three hundred people waiting outside trying oh to get God. in. Um, you know, by playoff time, they were pre-selling tickets for for the uh, semifinals and and the and the, and the finals wow. um, for the conference, and they sold out in under four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know just again yeah there was literally not a standing spot or, yeah. or seat in, in the place and you're talking about you know people just you know going nuts who have a real real pride for what for what we were doing not just on a school level but somewhat on a on a, on a kind of a background and traditional and, and religious level as well for sure that that's just awesome so a story in the associated press that I highly recommend everyone go out and read, describe something rather unique about the Yeshiva basketball program. At, during, and after your games, there are legions of young fans wanting to take selfies with the, with the guys on the team and autographs, and even that, they're the, they're the guys who those kids emulate when, when they're working on, on their own games. What does it mean to you that there are all these people who look to you and the young men in your program as role models? I think it's awesome. I think it's I think it's a responsibility, but it's an awesome responsibility. Um, it's hard to understand that, you know, from 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 the D three world a little bit. But you know, I, I'll tell you, we probably, um, you know, the questions we probably have to ask the NCAA in terms of things that we're allowed to do and not allowed to do are probably as close to a Division one program as you'll find <laughs> at D three level. Um, and and again, it's not nothing to do with the level of play yeah. and everything to do with you know the, the background of the school and, and and the fact that you know the 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 Jewish community has kind of jumped on board um, you know with with what we're doing in terms of supporting the basketball team. So you know whereas whereas a normal kid on the street and, and plenty of plenty of kids in our community too will look up to uh, you know Zion Williamson and and um, any Duke or Carolina or, or or your usual you know high level D one or NBA players you have these groups of kids who besides those you know basketball heroes that they have they're looking at a kid who might have been in the same Jewish high school that they're going to yeah. or at least or at least that a Jewish high school that maybe plays in the same league that their high school plays in and and they see them playing at a high level and having such success and they you know it becomes it becomes kind of that same kind of uh, of a role model uh, feeling and um, you know I can't even I can't even describe the amount of uh, you know texts and um, and requests we get media you know Jewish media non-Jewish media zoom zoom meetings <laughs> with, uh, schools and, and all kinds of things that people want to do, um, you know, to, to kind of get a piece of our guys or, or our program, which is, you know, again, it's, it, it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's fun. Um, but I think it's a responsibility as well. And I think it's a really important one and, and it gives our guys a, you know, from an educational standpoint, cause right. This is, these are student athletes and, yeah. and these are college guys who are going to go into the real world, uh, you know, 99.9% of the time in something other than sports. And, um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for them to learn how to kind of handle themselves in that situation uh, and, and, you know, say the right things, do the right things and, 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 you know, be the role model that some of these kids are looking up to. 
For sure. So, Coach, I really appreciate all the time. As we as we get to the end here, I have five rapid fire questions to to end the podcast. Let's do it. So the first question is: Do you have any pregame superstitions? Any pregame superstitions? Um, I don't. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I I don't eat for a few hours before a game. Okay. I don't know if I'll call that a superstition as much as I would call it being nervous. Okay. Um, you know, but but no, I don't really have that much in terms of a superstition. Although I'll tell you, uh, this year I did. This year, after we, it, it, this is you're gonna laugh. After we <laughs> lost the first game at Occidental, um, of the uh, first game of the season, I um, I shaved my head and my beard. And I, always, <laughs> I always have a shaved head, but like oftentimes just let it go for like a week or so before I'll kind of redo it. Uh-huh. Um, after the Occidental game, I was like in my hotel room. I shaved my head and my and my beard, and then we went out and won the next day. I did it uh, before every game after that. Gotcha. That 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 counts. So that's awesome. So the next question: If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm always big on lowering the shot clock. I, I, the less time, the better. I, I think our guys make better decisions than most teams. Um, you know, offensively. So I, I would always love the advantage defensively of having to guard for, for less time. What is your favorite drill as a coach? Uh, we have a five ball drill that we do that I, that I love. It's, um, it's a full court uh, drill that, that incorporates obviously fast break, passing, shooting. Um, but most of all, to me, it's a team chemistry drill. Uh, you know, we're always shooting for a score, a team score of 200 or more. Uh, not that easy to get to. And, and I think, you know, very often early on in the season, it'll, it'll bring out, uh, you know, either a lack of chemistry or if guys aren't on the same page in terms of, you know, the timing on when they shoot the ball and making sure their passes are, are efficient and on target. Um, you know, that, that, that would probably be the one that, that I think we see the most, most growth through throughout the year. So who is the best basketball player you have ever played against? Ever played against? Um, Johnny Garrett. Johnny Garrett played for USMMA, the Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point. Um, when I was playing, um, I think I, all, all I remember was coming over help side and uh, and catching his knee about my right about my face when he was dunking the ball. Um, but you know, Johnny Garrett was probably the, one of the, you know for, for the level that I played Division Three, he was probably the best player I saw that year. So my my last question here, Coach. Michael Sweetney, a former first-round draft pick of the New York Knicks, is, a, is an assistant coach for you guys at Yeshiva. What's it like having a, a former first-round pick and awesome superstar player at Georgetown on, on your coaching staff? Um, so I'll tell you, the special thing about Mike is you'd never know it from talking to him. Mm-hmm. Um, the most humble, down-to-earth guy you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, he's amazing with the guys. He brings, obviously, brings a wealth of knowledge from the level he played, and, and, and certainly in terms of skill development and being able to work with our guys, you know, a little bit individually. Um, but he's just a, an absolutely superhuman being, and uh, could not be happier that he's with us. So, Coach, I appreciate all the time uh, you, you've given us today. As always, on the double, we give the last word to the coaches and to the guests. So, do you have anything you want to say to the to the peop, to the great people of the yeshiva community and uh, just like the New York City area? 
Um, obviously, just you know, it's a, it's a tough world out there now, and and you know, uh, I hope everybody is being smart and staying safe. Uh, you know, there's nothing I want to see uh, more than a you know NCAA season happen next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the road to that is obviously uh, you know following the rules and just uh, making sure that we could you know kind of uh, tackle this thing in in whatever ways the doctors come up with. Um, for now, it's obviously staying at home and, and social distancing so uh we got to jump on board until they come up with some sort of a medical answer um and other than that just thanks this is awesome i, I love that you're doing this and i i wish you a ton of success with it and then uh, and i'm happy you thought to include me thanks coach really appreciate it good luck with everything going forward for the yeshiva program thank you so much that'll do it for this episode of the double double if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, And you can leave us a review or a rating. Five stars would be much appreciated. And you can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back on Friday. Until then, take care and make it a great day. <laughs>